0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside.
1: So tell me how American Airlines can cancel your flight... And then not rebook you on something, put you on standby and have you wait at an airport for 24 hours and tell you that the next flight that you can get is in six days. So we have
0: 200 passengers on this flight right now. How long have you been waiting? Seven hours. Seven hours. So they told us it was going to be 30 minutes and we're all
2: still on this flight. Spirit. At 1044 Spirit.
0: Six hours in a plane in Newark, New Jersey, and we never got off the ground.
1: We're going back to the terminal, and this is the line to get out of the plane. Everything's been canceled. Welcome to modern American air transportation. Complaints against U.S. airlines hit a record high last year, and it's not getting any better. Consumer complaints nearly doubled in the first three months of this year. That's according to the U.S. Department of Transportation. With only four major airlines, United, Delta, American, and Southwest in the U.S., controlling about 80 percent of the market, there's little choice. And with air travel expected to reach a record high this holiday season, many will be subjected to the worst of travel. Long lines, high prices, and seating space that seems to be shrinking by the year. So why does our time in flight have to be riddled with anguish? And what can be done to make the skies friendly again? We get into those questions and a whole lot more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us.
0: This message comes from NPR's sponsor, TeleDog Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teledoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teledoc Health can help. Visit teledochealthcom slash what's your why for more information. That's T E-L A-D-O-C Health slash what's your why.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, Let's get into it. Ganesh Sitaraman is with us. His new book is Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. He's a professor at Vanderbilt University Law School in Nashville, Tennessee, and director of the Vanderbilt Policy Accelerator. Ganesh, thanks for joining
2: us. Thanks so much for having me.
1: So let's give a flight plan for today. First, we'll get into how air travel got so bad, then how we can fix it. You've written books about economic inequality and political division, among other topics. What made you want to focus on the airline industry?
2: Well, there was really two things. One, I fly, and like a lot of people who fly, have had my share of frustrating, irritating, miserable mm-hmm. experiences. And I also am a law professor, and what I study is economic policy and regulation. And I was working on a textbook, um, writing a chapter on airline policy, and. As I dug into the history of what happened in the airline industry, what I realized was that policy choices were the driving force for almost everything that makes flying miserable today. And the biggest, most important policy choice in the airline industry was deregulation of the industry in 1978. And as I learned about this history, it just struck me that no one really knows this history very well. We have a kind of conventional wisdom that this is just the system we have, and it's the best we can do. And I don't think that's right. And I thought a lot of other flyers out there like me would find this history really fascinating and maybe feel more empowered to try to do something to make flying a little bit less miserable.
1: Let's go back to the 1930s when the industry was first regulated. What did those regulations look like?
2: What was really interesting is that Congress in the 1930s thought of air travel as a basic transportation infrastructure. It was a really important technology, like a public utility, and they wanted it to serve the whole country. And they wanted a stable, reliable airline industry, one that didn't need a lot of subsidies, wasn't going to have a lot of bankruptcies, um, but also wasn't going to have monopoly. And so they tried to create a system of regulated competition, And they understood this was an industry that wasn't like making coffee mugs or starting a restaurant. It wasn't going to be very, very competitive because it's expensive to get into the industry. It's really beneficial to have a really big network and to have a lot of scale. And so it would likely be a monopoly or an oligopoly. And so they they built this regime of regulated competition with a federal regulator called the Civil Aeronautics Board. And the board would allocate routes to different airlines, uh, tell an airline, well, you're going to serve some... More remote places, smaller cities, rural places might not be that profitable, but you're also going to serve some profitable places too. And they also regulated the prices of flights as well, largely uh, and eventually on a per mile basis. So you pay more if you're flying a longer distance. And that system, I think, was relatively stable. It had some problems. But over the 40 years that it lasted from the 1930s to the 1970s, to have more and more people flying. Uh, we saw prices going down. And there were really big innovations from propeller planes to jets, from jets to wide-body jets. Uh, And that was the system we had. It was one that was really focused on airlines as a critical public service or infrastructure for our country. Now, Ganesh,
1: you write that in the early 70s, airlines competed by upgrading services with luxuries like champagne and steak dinners. There were piano bars on planes. And that seems outlandish today, especially if you've flown recently.
2: How did regulations create that type of competition? Well, the main thing was that prices were controlled. And airlines had to follow what the regulator said about how to price. And so if they were looking to compete for customers, uh, you couldn't compete as much on price. And so you had to compete on service quality. And so we saw more of a race to the top on service rather than a race to the bottom. Hmm. Now, you explained
1: that there was an economic and political environment that
2: fostered the push for deregulation? What was going on at the time? So in the early 70s, there's a major economic crisis, high inflation, the oil shocks leading to high oil prices. And this crisis led also to decreasing demand uh, for people flying. And that was combined with a real intellectual movement that had built up over a number of decades uh, that pushed for more Freer markets, um, less regulation, less government action to shape how markets work. And the folks in this movement, um, largely led by economists and and legal academics, thought that it would be better if we didn't have this system of regulated competition, but instead... Let airlines fly wherever they want, whenever they want, and charge whatever they want. And they thought there might be dozens of airlines that would operate competitively if we deregulated. One person even suggested up to 200 airlines would operate competitively. And we'd have no real downsides. And so that was their pitch. And it was, Okay, but I, I, yeah. have to, I have to stop you there. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> there is always,
1: always some unintended downside to policy. It's almost unavoidable. How did they make that a compelling argument that, like, we're gonna deregulate it and everything's going to be fine?
2: I think I think part of what worked at the time was a combination of, of faith in markets in comparison to regulation, and an argument that the airlines and the government were working hand in glove together, and that was like a cartel run by the government. And it was also a political moment in which you had liberals getting on board. So you might expect that conservatives who would say, you know, we're against big government and regulation would support it. But Ralph Nader, uh, the leading proponent in the Senate, Ted Kennedy, uh, held big hearings on this. Um, future Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer was his main advisor in in this period, pushing for deregulation. So you had this kind of strange bedfellows coalition in which people were interested for different reasons and this climate of economic crisis and the eye-popping competition that we that we talked about said maybe something's off here and i think that was really the perfect storm for a really radical and swift change to this entire industry. We got this email
1: from Mark who says, before airline travel was deregulated, it was much more complicated. Travel agents, limited options, and more expensive than it is now. Part of what I'm I'm hearing from you around the policy change was, was about how the industry itself operated and how the industry could benefit. What was the argument for the consumer benefit? So
2: one of the things that in the regulated period... People wanted was access to lots of places in the country. And the concern was that if you're a big airline, it's not actually going to be very profitable for you to serve some small cities, some regions that don't have a lot of volume. And we're a vast country. If you believe that there are talented people all over the country, as I do. you want there to be service because transportation infrastructure is critical to economic growth, to connectivity, to people being able to visit, tourism. And so that was a core element, was a benefit to consumers is you could actually get to a lot of different places. A second was preventing deep concentration and monopolies. And in the regulated system, there was a, ver- a deep concern about making sure you wouldn't have too few competitors so that you would be subject to monopolistic exploitation. Um, and then a third part is thinking of this more like a utility. The idea was prices should be more standardized and so as I mentioned, you know when they set prices, it was on a basis of distance, and so if you're flying a longer distance, you're going to pay more if you're flying a shorter distance, you're going to pay less. It wasn't about how much competition there was on a route. it was uh, designed in a way that saw this as you know this is a, a service as, mm-hmm. a, as like other public services like your electric utility.
1: So the Airline Deregulation Act was passed in 1978. What were the immediate effects?
2: Well, I think the the short version is we didn't end up in the dream world that the deregulators had projected with 200 airlines operating competitively. It was more like the Hunger Games. And early on, there were all these new entrants coming in, New York Air, People Express, and they were offering really cheap prices. Uh, they had... No unionized workforces. They um, didn't offer meals or other fancy amenities. It was no frills, just peanuts mm-hmm. is what they they said at the time. And they weren't, though, flying to the rural places, the smaller cities. They were on the high-volume routes where there was money to be made. And that created some new competition for for a period of time. But the big airlines fought back. And they undercut them on prices. They offered more flights on the same routes in order to push out the small airlines. They also uh, tried to restructure benefits with their unionized workforces. And after dozens of bankruptcies and mergers in the 1980s and, and real cutthroat competition, we ended up with the same big airlines in charge of the industry just now, they were unregulated. And, you know, none of us fly New York Air or People Express anymore. Those airlines don't exist. Um, and that's where we ended up with this kind of shakeout that was back to something like a small number of airlines, but without the protections that the regulated system offered. When they were
1: making the argument for deregulation, it was just the expense of running an airline taken into account? We talk about, oh, there will be all of this competition this is a hugely expensive endeavor.
2: That's exactly right. You know the what, what's really interesting that I found in the research is that industry was against deregulation. Today we think of industry as you know usually in favor of deregulation, um, but they were actually against it. And part of the reason was they understood that this was both a kind of public utility, but that you couldn't just get into the airline business. That it's expensive to do that. That there's real barriers to entry. Uh, you have to have some place to land. You know, you can't just start an airline and fly wherever you want. You got to have an airport, and there's a limited number of gates, there's a limited number of runways. Can't just let anyone land whenever they want. We have to coordinate that with air traffic control. Um, and the bigger your network, the better off you are, because mm-hmm. people want to fly without connecting and switching airlines. Um, and they also prefer to fly on an airline where you have many, many flights per day going to that same destination in case there's a weather issue or a cancellation or something, you could change your flight. And that means scale is really important. All those things tend towards consolidation, make the competition story less viable.
1: When we talk about geographical access, how did deregulation affect that?
2: I think this is one of the really important stories that, that doesn't get told very much. In the regulated system, as I mentioned, the goal was to ensure access to the whole country. And we have a vast, vast country. After deregulation, airlines can reshape where they fly because the regulators aren't controlling that or allocating those routes. And what happens is airlines do that. And they move away from offering nonstop flights to a lot of different destinations and instead concentrate their operations in these hubs. And so if anyone's ever had to connect through Atlanta or Dallas Mm -hmm. or Charlotte or O'Hare or Newark, you, you know what I'm talking about instead of going point to point from one place to another nonstop, you're connecting, you're finding yourself running across, you know, what seems like a half marathon to get to the other end <laughs> of the airport, only to see the door close right before you yeah, make your connection. There. And and that was not the situation before, to the say, because we had this massive concentration. So, you know, in some cities, we've now moved from 20% of uh, an airport, which would have been you know, very concentrated in the 1970s, to 70% of an airport run by really one airline. And that's had real effects in in our country. Uh, First, you know, for consumers, it means longer flights because you have to connect. And it means these layovers, which is just a hassle and a frustration. Uh, It potentially means higher prices, depending on how concentrated your hub is. Because one thing we know is the more competition there is, the likelihood is there'll be better pricing um, so concentration is is bad from that perspective um, it's really bad from a resilience perspective too you know you think about bad weather high winds in Dallas that doesn't just hurt a few flights in Dallas because it's a major hub it has effects for the whole country and then finally for communities it's really devastating you know if you're a city that loses your hub um, or loses all service altogether, that's devastating potentially for your economy because who wants to start a business or host a convention in a place where you can't really get there? We're going to head to a quick break here. When we return, we talk about how the pandemic
1: impacted airline travel. Stay with us.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking This message comes from Wired. On Wired Politics Lab, you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of Internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Let's get back to the conversation. U.S. airlines received over $50 billion in government bailout funds during the COVID pandemic. That's when more than two-thirds of passenger planes were grounded. By 2021, Congress was asking where all that money went, as staffing shortages and cancellations still plague the industry. Ganesh, what did we learn about the economic health of airlines through the pandemic?
2: I think one of the things that Deregulation did was really put the airline industry in much more of a boom and bust cycle, where there are some years where the airlines are making money, really hand over fist. I mean, the late '90s, the 2010s. In fact, in the late 2010s, one uh, airline head said he didn't think they'd ever lose money again. Uh, and then there are these big shocks to demand: September 11th, COVID, where people aren't flying for a period of time. And in those moments, the airlines come to Congress, to Washington, and they say they want taxpayer support, bailouts or, or payroll support programs. And in some ways, to me, just that phenomenon, the fact that that's what happens and the fact that Congress obliges um, is proof that this isn't just a normal business. This is something special that is a real public service because it's so integral to so much of our economy that Congress feels like it has to act. The airlines are too important to fail. And so I think what we saw in the COVID crisis was exactly this dynamic at play. And the payroll support program was hugely important because it meant that you weren't going to have thousands and thousands of layoffs or uh, or furloughs for workers, which would have been terrible for those workers, but but also terrible for the industry and the country. Because when you don't have all these workers – uh, the airlines can't just start up again and hire any person off the street to be a pilot uh, or to be a flight attendant or to be a mechanic. You, you act, there's a lot of training. There's a lot of skill that goes into these jobs. They're, they're important positions. And so that would have meant even more of a crisis than we saw last year if we hadn't had this. I think one of the challenges is that the airlines you know, took a lot of voluntary retirements and in some ways skirted the spirit of the law. Um, and that was part of the problem in, in the crisis last, last year.
1: You identify three principles to fix flying. No more flyover country, no bailouts or bankruptcies, and fair and transparent pricing. How did you land on
2: those three core ideas? So I think I I wanted to pick some big principles rather than focus on very narrow objections. And, you know, I I agree with people who say, you know, the seats are too small. Yes. Like, it's frustrating to have delays and cancellations. But I think there's a real challenge if we try to just address each individual small thing. We end up playing a kind of whack-a-mole game where next year there'll be some other problem and the year after there'll be some other problem. And they'll find ways to make the experience more miserable. And so we really need bigger picture solutions. And and to me, addressing geographic issues, which is something that I think doesn't get much attention, addressing this boom and bust problem in the industry, which would also mean a more reliable Industry. I mean, I want there to be a reliable, stable, profitable airline industry. I think that's good for the country. Um, and then addressing the pricing issues, which, you know, I hope if we do that right, would lead to more service competition of the kind that we had a little bit more of in the regulated period.
1: What would it mean if we did away
2: with the idea
1: of flyover country in the U.S.? What would that look like in practice?
2: Yeah, so so the, the basic principle is there should be access to lots of cities all over the country, including small places and, and medium-sized cities. And so one proposal I put forward in the book, um, I think of it as sort of like the NFL draft, And the idea is you have a whole list of cities that wouldn't necessarily get much service or maybe any service at all. And then you've got the biggest airlines, and they get draft pick numbers, they get an order, and they can pick from the list. And we go through the list until all the the cities have been picked, and they're obliged to serve those cities at affordable prices, certain number of flights per day, certain number of flights per week. And they can make that work within their own business of you know, trying to find other competitive places. But, but that would be one way to ensure that we get access to a lot of places. You know, the airlines get a lot of privileges from us as a government, as, as, as a people, uh, you know, access to fly and so on. They should have some obligations too. Would that also require infrastructure
1: investments on the part of, of cities that want to receive these, these flights?
2: In some cases, I think it would, and that would be a good thing. I mean, I think we want to have development in, in a number of places. In in other cities, it might not. You know, just since COVID, 74 cities have had a uh, major airline pull out. Um, there are some cities that had air service and have lost all major carrier service, Dubuque, Iowa, for example. Um, and in those places, you know, you have the infrastructure, you just don't have the flights. Hmm.
1: Now, how would you stabilize the airline industry so that bankruptcies and bailouts aren't needed?
2: Well, I think one one proposal I talk about in the book is that we know there are these big demand shocks that are coming. Um they may not come every year or every 5 years, but they come and it's a big problem. The airlines could be required to have a plan for that, a kind of crisis management plan for what they're going to do when there's six months without demand or a year without demand. And we could also require them to have, as part of that, a kind of rainy day fund to not have to go to Congress and say, hey, we want taxpayers to foot the bill in the in the bad times.
1: Is that something you think the airline industry would be open to? Or is it even financially viable for them?
2: I'm not sure if they would be open to it. You know, I think one thing um, you find when you dig into some of the policy work these days is you know the status quo is pretty good for for them, and so I think if they could keep it, they'd probably rather keep the status quo, where in the good years they're doing great, their shareholders and and executives make a lot of money, um, and in the down years, you know the taxpayers foot the bill. You know they win on both ends, and so I suspect they would push back, but but that strikes me as something that uh, is a pretty hard argument to make if you're if you're really trying to make it with a straight face.
1: Today prices can jump dramatically from. Even one hour to the next, and there's a lot of consumer distrust as we're hearing about pricing. There's even a popular tip to to try to use incognito mode (laughs) when searching flights. Experts say that won't actually get you a better deal. But how can airfares become more transparent, um, fair, and and stable?
2: I think that's uh, all of this is a major concern for consumers and when you layer on top of that also the kind of junk fees of you know pay to pick your seat pay to add an extra bag um, there's just a proliferation of these fair classes of the different choices of all these different fees and of the dynamic pricing and i think one way we could do that is just require as a regulatory matter that there's going to be a certain number of fair classes and that's it and there's gonna be stable prices and it shouldn't matter if you're gonna buy your ticket a day before, a week before, a month before. Prices are prices and you, you pay a certain price. We we have that actually in other areas uh where it doesn't matter if you buy a subway ticket, you know, in, in New York, you know, a day before or two minutes before. Mm-hmm. Um the prices are the same.
1: But are some of the variables that that airlines are planning for, things like fuel costs. Are those
2: reflected in other places where we see fixed prices? Well, I think, you know, this is a problem for businesses of all different types, right? You know, if you're a restaurant, if you're a manufacturer, you have to think about how costs might fluctuate, and airlines have to do that too. Um, But having stable prices doesn't necessarily mean also that the government sets them, like in the regulated period. We could just say... You want to have a price for coach, it's just got to be the same price, and you know you can set that, and, and that's what it is. But we shouldn't have this system where, you know it matters if you buy it on Tuesday morning versus Tuesday afternoon. And I think that's a place where we could have a lot more stability, it would be more transparent, it would be fairer for consumers, um, and it'd still give the airlines a lot of flexibility in how they set their prices and how they run their business.
1: CBS News reported in July that the industry is short roughly 32,000 pilots, mechanics, and air traffic controllers, and that it's getting worse each year, that staffing shortages led to increased flight delays and cancellations. What's going on with staffing?
2: Well, I think there's a, a number of things going on. You know, one is just the COVID situation where you know there were a number of people who retired, um, and that means shortages. And and when you have that, it has a cascading effect across the whole the whole sector. Um, another is that you know in some other countries they've for a while developed systems to encourage recruit train uh, pilots and, and others. And I think that's something that that we could do more of here and the airlines have started doing that just in recent years. Um, But I think there's a real opportunity there. And, and to, you know, to some of the callers, I I would just add that I I think they're right. You know, I start the book by, by saying flying's a miracle. Um, It's an amazing thing that we have the ability to do this. And we have all these workers who are so talented and skilled and, you know, for everyone going through holiday travels, you know, if you're frustrated or canceled, don't blame them. They're not the problem. Uh, they're not the ones who are doing that. They're trying to do their best, and and the challenge is really the structure of the system that is built around that, not the individual people who are working there. So please tr- treat them kindly, um, if even if you're frustrated.
1: Well, with the stress on the system, what does that mean for the safety of air travel these days?
2: So one of the positive things, I think, about deregulation is that there were some people who predicted it might lead to massive declines in safety. And that has not, I think, been the case, in part uh, because they did not deregulate the uh, FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, which uh, does a lot of the safety work. Um there are some people who've argued that there have been some challenges with delayed maintenance and an outsourcing of maintenance um, on the safety front. But, you know, I think we, we've been pretty successful so far in, in that regard in terms of also things like making sure we have uh, really high standards for being pilots um, with a lot of training, a lot of flight time. Uh, and that's that's partly a safety story.
1: How much motivation do you see from lawmakers to address this issue? Is there any energy or any any proposals that are out there right now?
2: yeah. so so one thing that I found really interesting in working on this is that because of this kind of conventional view that there's nothing we can really do about this, that we're kind of stuck. this is the this is the system we have. um that a lot of the proposals have been kind of smaller bite-sized things rather than thinking a little bit bigger about how we get at the root problems and try to solve them. And my hope is that the book will push policymakers more in that direction. And, and I think there's some appetite because, you know, there are people in every state in the country, every district uh, in, in Congress who fly and who are frustrated at flying. And so I think members of Congress have a really popular issue if they choose to take it up. That's Ganesh Sitaraman,
1: a professor at Vanderbilt University Law School and director of the Vanderbilt Policy Accelerator. He's out with the new book, Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. We know you're on book tour right now. That means a lot of travels. And uh, we saw your first flight of the tour was already delayed. So we wish you luck, Ganesh, as you continue. Thanks so much. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.
0: This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab investing themes like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success.